As Dan mentioned a moment ago, my name is Bill Acker. I'm a teaching elder in Wisconsin Presbytery. My principal work is with Lamp Seminary, which is a ministry of our presbytery. And also I serve as the clerk of Wisconsin Presbytery. So one of the benefits of that is I've read through the Presbyterian Church in America's Book of Church Order more times than I care to think about. So <clears throat> today we are in 1 Samuel chapter 31. The last chapter in 1 Samuel, we kind of conclude our study of 1 Samuel with the death of King Saul. So let me read for us this chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and uh, Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put the armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the wall at Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. The word of the Lord. We have in this chapter the end of the life of Saul. And I jokingly said to someone earlier, they said, what are you going to say? I'm going to say, Saul is dead. So we can all just wrap that up and go home. Probably one of the best sermons you've ever heard. But there's more to the passage once you start to look at some things than you might think at first. Someone asked, have you ever preached on 1 Samuel 31? And the answer was, no, I've not. I preach on other passages from 1 Samuel, but not this chapter about the death of Saul. And one of the things I think that we see as we think of Saul, as we have seen him, as he came on the scene uh, with uh, Samuel himself at first, and then through things were taking place, and then David, was that Saul very often didn't really understand 
the spiritual significance of the events that he was caught up in. And sometimes we are like Saul in that we will see things happen, but we don't completely understand all the significance of what it is that's happening. Since this is sort of about a a battle, I remember some years ago, well not that many years ago, sitting at a table after I had been to a course uh, as a chaplain, Navy chaplain, it was in Newport, Rhode Island, and one of the people seated at my table at the dinner that we had after the conclusion of the course was Chaplain Barry Black, who was the chief of chaplains. And unless um, I haven't heard differently, he's also now serving as a chaplain of the U.S. Senate. At any rate, we were recounting things that took place on September the 11th, 2001. And this course was just a year or so after that event. And so some of the other chaplains who were there were talking about what they did that day. Most all of those who were in Washington went to the Pentagon and there they were working in conjunction with a triage tent that was set up to treat the wounded. And somebody asked Chaplain Black, what did you do, Chaplain Black? And Chaplain Black said, I didn't do anything. Which is kind of a shock. He said, why, why not? He said, I was out in Bremerton, Washington. And the day before, I was on a submarine with some other dignitaries. And the Navy was going to have a dog and pony show to show us the capabilities of a nuclear submarine, how great they were. And we were there. We spent the night on the sub. And the next morning, we had breakfast, or we're going to have breakfast and the attacks in, in New York and Washington took place. And the sub received orders to take up station in the Pacific off the coast of Washington. Now, I guess you could have left, he said, but we were like 300 feet underwater and nobody wanted to do that. So we were there three weeks. And we didn't really know what was going on. except that something had happened which was pretty significant. With the full significance of what had happened, he said, we didn't, we didn't know. We knew something was going on, but we just didn't know what it was. I remember about a year ago, I think it was, watching a video of a big major accident just north of Milwaukee. It was a snowy winter day, and uh, some cars were traveling slowly heading north, uh, but there were a few people, and I don't know what it is about big SUVs and snowy days, but something happens in some people's minds, and they, they become like maniacs. And there were cars, and you know, just travel like 70, 75 miles an hour down the left lane of this interstate. It is an interstate. And sure enough, they had to put on their brakes. They spun out. It's like a pinball machine. Cars are ricocheting off of other cars. Cars are going to the ditch. And people are coming up on this scene. It's like something just doesn't register. That, hey, you know, maybe, maybe I should slow down. But they just kept piling into each other, one after another after another. So people saw something, but didn't really understand the significance of what was going on. Sometimes we know there are plane crashes, and as uh, they study the black boxes and so forth, they realize that the problem was with the pilot. The instruments were showing what was really taking place with the plane, 
but the pilot's senses were such that he, he didn't believe the instruments and he didn't really understand the significance of what was going on and the plane crashes. And like Saul, I think we often see things happen without realizing the significance or the spiritual significance of what is taking place. Now, I have three points. The first is Saul's problem. Not problems, but problem. Saul's punishment, the second point. And I'm going to stop the alliteration there and go to Saul's grandson as the third, the third point. So let's talk about Saul's problem. Saul's problem was he did not realize that he was not only king of Israel and responsible for the physical security of the nation, but he was also involved in the spiritual protection of the nation. And Saul just never seemed to get that there was a spiritual dynamic that he was part of because he continued to be disobedient to God. Over and over, he just disobeyed what God told him to do. In the end, God rejected him as king, and we'll get to Saul's punishment in just a moment, but but Saul just sort of missed the point. He He was anointed as king, things started well, and then things sort of went downhill from there. And one of the books that I was studying was called Promise and Deliverance. Give a little plug for this series. It's four volumes. Promise and Deliverance by DeGraff is considered a classic work. And I hate to say this because you probably won't ever read it if I do, but this is sort of like Bible stories for adults. And DeGraff has an uncanny ability to go through the scriptures and, and explain what the text is saying and show the spiritual significance of what, uh, of what is being said. So this is what DeGraff says about Saul becoming king. King Saul had everything in his favor, but if he was to stand up to the test, if the people were to be truly blessed through him, he would have to live by faith and trust the Lord in all things. His faith still had to be demonstrated. A noble disposition was not enough. Did Saul belong to the Christ? Did the Spirit of Christ dwell in Saul? And through him and the people as well. And then the graph goes on to talk about Saul's encounter with Nahash, king of the Ammonites. Now one of the things I enjoy about preparing sermons is the study. I, I could probably just prepare sermons even if I never had to preach them because I enjoy doing that. And so I looked up the word Nahash. It's not a very common word for us. But that name and that word is the same word that's used for serpent in Genesis 3, chapter, uh, verse 1. Hmm. So the graph is saying King Saul is going to be tested. 
is Saul going to be this next Adam who's going to be a deliverer for his people? And things start out fairly well with Nahash. He defeats him, destroys him, the snake king. But then there's another snake, Goliath. Now in the English Standard Version, which many of you use, which I use, it says that Goliath, talking about his armor, had a coat of mail. And we probably think of something coming out of the Middle Ages, something like a knight might wear. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you find that that's probably not the best rendering. His armor were scale armor. It's there were like plates of metal that were sewn on a leather or maybe even cloth. And these would overlap like the scales of a snake. And one scholar said it may be that when David, having seen Goliath, Saul was afraid to fight him, but when David saw Goliath, and he said, hey, you know, I've killed the lion, I've killed the bear, I can kill this Philistine. It may have been essence saying, hey, I've killed the lion, I can kill the bear, I can take out this snake too. And so Saul was afraid. And one of the things we remember we saw back with David is that David understood the significance of the contest that was before Israel. It was a spiritual contest. And David said, this snake, this Goliath, this giant is not going to defy the armies of the living God. He's blaspheming God. He has to be taken out. And through different events, Saul begins a certain descent into maybe even madness. I, I don't know. There are different opinions about that. But if you think of, of Saul's personality, initially he was cowardly. Although at the very end, he seemed to have a certain amount of courage. Uh, the night before, Samuel said, you know, you're, tomorrow you're going to die, you and your sons. But Saul is still out there in the battle. So at least seemed like his courage finally found him. He was stubborn. He was paranoid. He was jealous. He was rash. He had fits of anger. And he was disobedient to God's commands. Other than that, he was probably a pretty nice guy. <laughs> but Saul did not finish well. And although Saul may not have understood the spiritual significance of, of this contest which he had with the Philistines, notice the, the words, and they sound very familiar, don't they, of, in this passage. If we look at um, verse uh, 9 of the passage, So when the Philistines found Saul dead, so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Whoa. That almost sounds like New Testament stuff about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is sort of the anti-gospel, if you will. So they were rejoicing because Dagon was victorious over Jehovah. They saw that. At least they were for a moment. But... Saul missed all of that. And so Saul's punishment fell upon him. 
He was rejected as king. And in the end, he died because he was disobedient to God. Samuel's words are fulfilled. The spirit had departed from Saul and he died on a mountaintop. Now, we know that we want to find Christ in the Old Testament. So how do we find Christ in Saul's death? Well, it'd be hard to make a a good comparison between Saul's death and Christ's death. Saul died because of his sins, because he was disobedient. It was a punishment that fell upon him for rejecting the Lord, in essence. But there is another death in the New Testament we read about, which is maybe even more tragic in some ways, but also more glorious than Saul's death, and that is the death of Jesus Christ. And the difference between Christ and Saul is Saul was guilty of disobedience. Jesus was not guilty. Jesus was obedient. He faced the temptations of Satan. He never yielded those temptations. Even up to the end, he was willing to be obedient to God's will for him. And so that night in which he was arrested and the night before his crucifixion, as he's in the garden, he's praying And he understands the full significance of what is going to happen to him. That God's wrath is going to be poured out upon him. And for hours he's going to be beaten and mistreated and mocked. And then he's going to be nailed to a cross. And there he will suffer punishment. Because he was suffering punishment not for his sins, but for our sins. In theology, we, there's a term, imputation, which I imagine you're familiar with. And there's a quote I could read from G.I. Williamson, but I won't read that. But um, Williamson explains what imputation is. Imputation is when something is reckoned or thought to be true or regarded as such. Reckon is a good southern word, you know. Is Billy Bob going to get married tomorrow? I reckon so. You know, so it means I think so. As far as I know, it's going to happen. So, but reckon is also a theological term. Reckon means this is going to happen. And so, imputation has to do with our sins, or the sins of the elect, or sins of the believers, however you want to say it, being given to Christ, or reckoned as His. So that our sins were punished in Christ's body. And Christ's righteousness is imputed or given or reckoned to us. Martin Luther said, we have an alien righteousness. Seems like a strange thing to say. But what he was saying is we have a righteousness which is not ours. It's Christ that is given to us. And we are justified. But just because we are justified and declared righteous doesn't mean that we don't sin. 
we are justified, but we're still sinners. Sort of kind of strange mix of things there. But Christ has died for us. In the book of Revelation, there's an interesting passage. In Revelation 12, starting with verse 10, And heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And in this passage, which speaks about the accuser of the brothers, the one's going to be thrown down, ultimately thrown into the, uh, the bottomless pit. You want to guess the depiction of that accuser a little bit earlier in this chapter? A dragon, a serpent, who accuses day and night the brothers. Now we don't necessarily realize that. You know, we say, my faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, I'm saved from my sins, and we kind of skip along our way, but we don't realize that, that there is a dragon, a serpent, who constantly says to God, how can you possibly save those people? They are sinful, they're disobedient, they're just like Saul. Why would you show your grace and mercy to them? How can you love them? How can you allow them into your kingdom? How can you ever think about having them before you in heaven? And if we think that our response would be, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not too bad. I've never been like Saul. Or I've never been like so-and-so. I'm a good person. Then we, we completely misunderstand what our condition is as people. We are utterly corrupt. And the only hope we have is not in our own goodness, but in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was perfect. And we are saved not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of what He has done. As I was thinking about this, to say, how can we pick someone who is so good, but, but still is sinful? What came to my mind was my grandmother, my father's mother. She had a hard life. Her husband was killed in an industrial accident. And so most of her life, she lived it as a widow. She had two sons. And she, if I had to say, name anyone, was a good person. She had a love for other people. She was kind. She was gentle. So I said, well, where's, what's the downside? And part of it was a certain pride she had. Now, I know everybody has their favorite automobile. But when I was little, she had a 1956 Bel Air Chevrolet. Two-tone, light blue and white. Eight-cylinder engine. 
I don't know how many, how many times I've been with her or was with her, and you bid a stop sign, and you know the engine rumbling, and somebody had like a Ford or a Dodge would pull up next to it, and she'd kind of look over there, and and then uh, you know, so hear the gas pedal starting to revving up a little bit. Light would change, and she was like a jackrabbit off the line, and and usually the other person was not suspecting because you know gray-haired old lady, what you know, but the next stoplight. You know, now this other guy's ready to rumble here. So you're sitting there. So I'm, you know, drag racing with my grandmother. And then just back before they had seat belts or airbags or anything like that, your life was really on the line. So here, here's this nice lady who never did any of the normal things that you would think of as sin, as far as I know. But there was still at least one thing I know, and that was Pride. She liked to be the first off the line, especially against Fords and Dodges and Packards, whatever it may be back then. And uh, she was not too bad a driver, as it turns out. And she had a nice side. I was like 12 years old. We'd be visiting residents of the country. Hey, you want to drive? Sure, I'll drive. Yeah, so you're behind the wheel, you know. And uh, that's how I learned to drive, to be honest. So even my grandmother, as good as she was, had a certain sinful streak. We all do. So we must have that one who is able to slay the accuser. And that one is Jesus Christ. Now let's change gears just a little bit. And let's look at Saul's grandson. Jonathan's son. If we move into 2 Samuel... We know that Saul is gone, David is king, and the first number of chapters, he's involved in defeating the Philistines. And then when we come to chapter 9, we find David asking if there's anyone left of Saul's family, because he wants to show them kindness for the sake of Jonathan Saul's son and David's best friend. So someone says, well, there is, there is someone. His name is Mephibosheth. And he's crippled. Uh, he was five years old when, when uh, Saul died and his nurse was trying to take him to safety because of all the chaos that was ensuing at that point. And she dropped him and I don't know if he broke his leg or foot or what happened exactly, but he became lame and was lame for the remainder of his life. He was crippled. So David says, well, bring him to me. So here, Mephibosheth, and I don't know if he hobbled in or if people had to carry him, I don't know. But he, he's now in front of the king, and he knows he may well be the last descendant of Saul that anybody knows of. And so what is David going to do? Because he could still mount a claim for the throne, I suppose. But Saul says, you know, don't, I'm not going to hurt you, don't worry. But I want to show kindness to you. I'm going to restore all the lands that your grandfather had. Your servant's going to work it for you. And you're going to eat at my table the rest of your life. You know, people say, well, no, you don't have to do any of that. No, you're going to eat at my table the rest of your life. I tried to find out what, which table was it that David is talking about. Was this his family table? where he and his wives and children would eat. Mephibosheth came in, 
in, in essence, being ad almost adopted into the family, eating there all the time. I think more likely this is the table David would have, uh, it would eat with his mighty men. Where they would sit around the table and they would enjoy each other's company and probably tale, tale, tales of, of battles and so forth. And here this poor crippled guy is sitting there among them. I played soccer in college and uh, I don't know if any of you played sports, but you know, you get the guys together or if you're even in military units, you get certain things, you know, it's kind of a rowdy, raucous type of affair. They wouldn't let us eat with the normal people. We had to eat in a separate room, you know, we were just like, they just like animals, you know, just... But we were, no, we just, and we enjoyed that. We reveled in that. Yeah, you know, just throwing rolls across and doing that kind of stuff. And I, I imagine that Mephibosheth is sitting there at least the first number of times. If these are the mighty men, they're making fun of somebody because they went the wrong way in battle or they did whatever it was. And, and uh, they're, they're recounting the glory of, of the battles. And here he's sitting there crippled, not able to fight not able to defend himself, but he's just part of this, this activity. But they accept him because David accepts him. I guess fortunately for him, everybody liked Jonathan. They liked his father. And so, although he's not worthy, he's made to be worthy. And he becomes part of the gang like an honorary member of the mighty men, although they could never go out to battle. There's a little dust up later on in 2 Samuel with Mephibosheth, and that gets sorted out okay. But Mephibosheth is a picture, I won't say he's a type, but I'll just say he's a picture of the believer. In our, one of my seminary classes, we were talking about some things. And one of the questions was, if somebody doesn't think they're sinful, can they really be saved? I'm not sure that they can. Because if you don't think you're sinful, why do you need a Savior? But the Bible uses certain images to kind of depict for us what we are like spiritually. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, there's the parable of the great banquet. And you know the story. The king's having this banquet and he invites people to come and there's these excuses. People don't want to come. Well, you know, I just bought this field. I probably better go look at it. Or have these oxen, I need to go try them out, or whatever it is. And the king becomes upset. And then we read, down in verse uh, 21, The master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, What has been commanded has been done. And there's still room. He says, go out and compel people to come in. 
And we are those people that have been compelled to come in. We have nothing to offer. Spiritually speaking, we are crippled. We are lame. We are blind. But the Lord says, come. And we believe. As the Lord works in our life and gives us understanding and opens our eyes. And brings healing, spiritual healing to us. And then we also become involved in that battle, the spiritual war that is taking place. I know uh, a number of you watch or have watched the Longmire television series. It's on Netflix. And, uh, and well, show of hands. How many have watched Longmire? This one? Okay, some of you. All right. People in the know have watched it. Okay. Well, in, in Longmire, sort of a modern-day Western, Walt Longmire is a sheriff of some fictional county in Arizona or Wyoming where there's probably more murders than Chicago. But at any rate, in one episode, someone is killed and Walt determines that they were killed by or with a pistol called a snake slayer. It's a small pistol that shoots a 410 shotgun shell, and they were shot at close range. And um, I'd never heard of a pistol called the Snake Slayer before. I like the name, but I had never heard of it. So I looked things up. You can buy them at Gander Mountain. They're kind of pricey, I guess, but you can buy them. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, we think of Christ as the snake slayer. But the Bible also talks about us as being snake slayers. In the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 20, says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, I, I, when I read that, I say, what? <laughs> I thought Christ was the one who was the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. And he is, but there's a sense in which the Lord is also using us to bring about that ultimate destruction of Satan. So there is a sense in which we are also snake slayers. I'm not saying go out and buy a snake slayer pistol. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritually. And how are we snake slayers? Another part of scripture we're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we slay Satan in that sense when we are obedient and do not yield to his temptations. When we pray for God's strength and guidance. When we read God's word and we're obedient to those commands which God has before us. When we live as Christians are supposed to live, Satan is being crushed more and more and more. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we transition from Saul who sort of missed the mark, did not have that spiritual understanding through his death, through the the true king who died for his people, Jesus Christ. The goodness and grace shown to Saul's grandson, who I believe is a picture of, of believers brought into God's presence and kingdom and experience his love and fellowship. Close where we're told that we are involved in the defeat of that serpent, Satan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the things which you tell us. We know that we are to read the scriptures and to discern the the spiritual intent of what we are told. Some places it's perhaps more easy than others, but this is part of of what it means to study the scriptures. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly live as Christians, as believers, as people who belong to you, who don't just profess faith in Christ, but demonstrate that faith by our actions and obedience. In Christ's name, amen.